today, brothers and sisters, we are living in unprecedented times. And I know that might sound like the understatement of the week, but the unemployment rate is pushing higher by the day and higher by the week, and there's many that we know and love who are struggling in this environment. With that, I want to remind you that a week past Easter Sunday, that Jesus, who rose again from the dead, is in fact sitting at the right hand of the Father on his throne. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. He came to inaugurate his kingdom, and he will return to consummate it. Until then, we're living in the gap. We're living in between the already but the not yet kingdom. Seventy-two years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote the following in the midst of fear regarding the atomic bomb. He said this, he said, this is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying and working and teaching and reading and listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs or a virus. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Today, I'm excited we get to start preaching through the book of James. And our plan after Easter was to continue our sermon series, He Reigns, which would have been good. We had about four uh, sermons planned out. But as pastors, uh, as we talked about it and discussed its current environment, we just feel like we need to get back into a book of the Bible and let God's word speak for itself without any agendas. James's message is to a people like us living in a time like ours. He wants to encourage believers towards a faith that works, or if you will, a working faith. If there was a primary purpose in today's sermon as I introduce this book of James, it would be to whet your appetite for this amazing book of James. Secondarily, it would be to convince you how much you and I need this book right now as some of us suffer and as some of us ask the question, God, what are you doing and how do you want me to respond? After Jesus' resurrection, he lived with his disciples for 40 days. And in um, Acts chapter 3, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, that Jesus presented himself with many proofs and speaking about the kingdom of God. Then we go to verses 6 through 9 in Acts chapter 1. And, and by the way, I just want to give you a warning. I'm glad this is on video because you're going to be able to pause it. You're going to be able to pause the video and um, find the scriptures in your Bibles because there's going to be a lot of them. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the disciples were fearful and they were confused. And the question that they asked Jesus before he ascended to heaven was this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What the disciples were asking Jesus is, when will you set all things right? When will you make all things new? When will there finally be an end to sin and suffering and death? When will there finally be ultimate peace on earth? And Jesus, I'm sure lovingly and kindly, with compassion, basically said to them, don't worry about that. I will give you the promised spirit who will give you strength to persevere in any and every situation. And he will also strengthen you to finish the work that I began. To be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas around the world. Jesus' call was for them to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and to engage in the mission of God. After Jesus said these things, he ascended to heaven and out of their sight. That had to be frightening. After spending every day, every hour with Jesus over the last three years, their friend, their mentor, and their savior is now gone. And as they were straining to get one last glimpse of him, Two angels appeared and said in verse 11, chapter 1 of Acts, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will return on his timetable. Then in verses 12 and 14, the disciples um, returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet And when they had entered, this is verse 12 and 13 and 14, and when they had entered the house, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brother. There's a couple of things I want you to observe here. His closest disciples were together. And when there's tough times, when there are people suffering in the church and outside the church, the church gathers together. And we can't gather together um, physically, but we can gather, gather together in one accord devoting ourselves to prayer. And praise be to God, we can also gather together um, through things like Zoom. But his closest disciples were together. Secondly, they had one might, one mind, one heart, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And I want you to notice one other thing. There were 11 apostles there. There's just 11 left. And then there were women there, and then Jesus' mother was there, and his brothers were were there. Jesus had brothers. 
may not be news to you, but it's actually kind of cool that Jesus, God in the Bob, had brothers, had half-brothers that were born to Mary and Joseph. The Savior of the world, the one who set the cosmos in motion, had brothers. In fact, he had sisters as well. And this group of disciples who were gathering in, the, in an upper room, devoting themselves to prayer, were the core group of the first church in history. And you might ask, well, that's fine, Dan. What does that have to do with the book of James? Spoiler alert. James was one of Jesus' brothers who was in that upper room with his mom, with the apostles, devoting himself in one accord with the others in prayer. When I read a book, I like to know about the author. I like to know uh, about his history, his background, his education. Is he or she writing this book from theory or is he writing it from experience? Oftentimes, when I feel like I know the author, it's easier for me to connect to what it is that he's writing and what it is I'm reading. So what do we know about the author of the book of James? It's limited. But we can draw some clues from Scripture, and we can also draw some clues from other, from other historical accounts. He was Jesus' brother. He was obviously from Jesus' hometown, being his brother. And he was from actually a very unimpressive and very average family. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his name? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus and his family were very ordinary in that town. Now I want you to notice something here. In, in Old Testament writing, the family, the brothers, the children were listed from oldest down to youngest. Oldest listed first, youngest after that. And if you look at the order of the brothers here, James and then Joseph and, and Judas and then Simon. I was the oldest of seven children growing up. That's a tough place to be, might I tell you. I've got scars to prove it. But what I found is, in, at least in our family, is that the, my next youngest uh, male sibling, Michael in this case, was the one I was closest to. He was also the one that I had the most conflict with. And he was the one that probably knew me the best. In fact, I had the top bunk. My little brother, Mike, had the bottom bunk. And one beautiful day in August, when I was probably 15 and he was probably 11, he set my bunk on fire. True story, I'm sitting there um, getting ready to go to bed, and there's smoke billowing up on 
close guys in my bed. I'm wondering if James might have played some tricks like that on Jesus. And how hard must it have been for James to be little brother of big brother who was perfect in every way? Let's go back to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Where Jesus is at the beginning of his public ministry after he had just appointed the 12 apostles. And they all gathered in a home with a large crowd to hear Jesus preach. And Mark tells it this way in verse 21. When his family heard of it, when his family heard that Jesus was in this house um, talking about the kingdom of God, they went out to seize him, his mom and his brothers. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus family um, thought he was crazy. And then when his mother and his brothers arrived at the house to seize him, the crowd told Jesus that, that his family was outside and they were seeking him because they, they couldn't get into the packed house. They were shoulder to shoulder. And I want you to listen to Jesus' response. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who is my mother and my brothers? I would imagine that brought great hurt to Jesus' mother and maybe resentment to his brothers. What Jesus was saying, of course, is that you who believe in me, my spiritual family, are uh, more of a family to me than my unbelieving biological family. They had to be hard words for his little brothers to hear. Did they feel rejected in any way? Then later in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. What do we know about Judea? The capital is Jerusalem. He wasn't ready to go to Jerusalem because his time had not yet come. He came to die, but on his time and his terms. He would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, his brother said, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. His family, who spent 30 years with him, did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And his brothers encouraged him to go to Jerusalem. His brothers uh, didn't care what happened to him, and his brothers didn't believe in him. It's no wonder that Jesus, the firstborn son of Mary, entrusted his mother at the cross to his beloved disciple, John, and not to his biological brothers. James and his brothers were not sympathetic in any way to Jesus' ministry 
and they didn't even believe in him. So I do want to be careful because there's, don't, don't throw James under the bus yet because there's no indication that James didn't want to take care of his mom. It's that Jesus didn't want James to take care of their mom. What else do we know about James? Historians tell us that James died in about 62 A.D. What, what history tells us is that, that James was killed for proclaiming that his brother was in fact the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he was the only way to the Father. And they threw him off a cliff to die. And at the bottom of the cliff, he lies bleeding and breathing, and so they stoned him. And after stoning him, he still lived, and finally they had to club him to death. This is a man who was grew up with Jesus as an unbeliever. And at the end of his life, he died as a witness that Jesus was who he said he was. So how did James go from that type of brother to the one who wrote the letter of James and died for his faith? Here it is. You ready? The same way that you and I died. Sometime during the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus was giving many proofs and speaking about the kingdom of God, Jesus opened his little brother James' eyes to the reality of who Jesus was. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7, Paul, in this in this beautiful resurrection chapter, gives testimony to this at some level. Listen to verses 1-7. through seven. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's Peter. And then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most who are still alive, Paul says, while he's writing this, and some who have died, fallen asleep. Get this. Then he appeared to James, than to all the apostles. He appeared to his little brother, James. Up until that point, James and his brothers are only mentioned as non-believers, as men who didn't seem to care about their big brother. His brothers weren't mentioned being present at Jesus' crucifixion or as eyewitnesses of his burial. In fact, they missed his funeral, if you will. But Jesus proving himself alive and speaking about the kingdom of God is what James needed to hear in order for the Spirit of God to soften his heart and open up his eyes that Jesus is who he said he was. And that brings us full circle back to Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus' closest disciples were gathered in a home, devoting themselves to prayer. James and Jesus' other brothers are now believers. 
James and his brothers are saved by grace, by grace alone, through faith alone. And as C.S. Lewis said, that every human being, whether it be a blood relative of the man Jesus or somebody that graduates from seminary or your children, that every human being has to answer the question that C.S. Lewis asked, who is God? Excuse me, who is Jesus? And there's only three possible answers. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, as his brothers thought he was, or he is, in fact, who he said he was. God, the creator and savior of all of humanity. So the first church was established in Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. James and his brothers were part of that first church. Jesus told his followers that they would receive the Holy Spirit and they would be, they would be witnesses to the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. And he told them to do it in Jerusalem. And do it in the surrounding areas around the city you live in. And go to the ends of the earth being my witnesses, testifying to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save the world from their sin and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Let's fast forward to Acts chapter 8. Do you remember what took place in the previous chapter? That's right. That's the chapter where Stephen, a deacon in the first church, testified to who Jesus was. And that the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, were so incensed that they stoned him to death. He was the first martyr in the, out of the first church in Jerusalem. And as a result of this persecution, of this um, persecution, the church scattered. Believers in Jerusalem scattered, and their dispersion, if you will, laid the groundwork for a worldwide spread of the gospel in the first century. Listen to Acts chapter 11, 19 through 22. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. And Hellenists were Gentiles that were converted to the Jewish faith. And so some of these that were scattered um, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Here's what's happening here. When the news that Gentiles were coming to faith reached the church leaders in Jerusalem, there arose a dispute amongst the leaders in Jerusalem whether Gentiles need to be circumcised or not. And the final word from the council all the leaders in Jerusalem where the church started, the final word from the council was spoken by none other than James, Jesus' brother, the recognized leader of the church in Jerusalem. And James spoke with a man that was armed with authority and the knowledge of the word of God. In Acts chapter 15, verse 13, 
after everybody made their case, everybody was done speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And then in verses 14 through 18, um, he backed up his opinion with scriptures. And then he stated his final uh, conclusion in verse 19. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And who had the last word on it? James, little brother of Jesus. He held the final word. He's now the recognized leader of the church in Jerusalem. What a journey. Rebel, rebel unbeliever to be used by his creator to lead the church. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, brother of Jesus, identifies himself simply as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were not many people in the early church named James who could get away with such a simple identification. In fact, there was probably just one James who was famous enough to simply say, James, and expect everyone would know who he was. James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word for servant is important here. Used by James, it is doulos, which means slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not a slave as you and I would think of it. Not a slave that is being treated unjustly or who's being kept um, against their will. It's a doulos is someone born into slavery and who willingly remains in the service of his master, never desiring to escape because he has it so good. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord comes from the Hebrew word Adnai. The sovereign one. God the Father, the sovereign one. And when Jewish readers would see that Jesus Christ is attached to Lord and God, they would know that James is associating Jesus with the eternal God. And just a side note here, another um, another uh, word for Adonai is slave owner. So when James refers to a slave owner, or God is a slave owner, it's one who cares for and loves his slaves. So he identifies himself as a servant of God, a, a slave of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if I were in James' position, you know, it's like being, I don't know, what would be an equivalent? I mean, being Donald Trump's brother or, or Tom Brady's brother. Like, I, I want people to know that, I think. Probably for both of them. I probably want people to know that. But here's what James doesn't say and what I probably would have said. I probably would have said, um, I'm James, the brother of Jesus, you know, son of Mary, Joseph, the guy that rose from the dead. I'm the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Look at my credentials. 
my auto signature. That's all of that I am. Nope. He says, I'm James, the slave of God and the slave of my brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the audience he gave to? Two of the 12 tribes in the first century. This audience is most likely a Jewish audience primarily. As he's writing to all who were dispersed or scattered after the persecution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. To put it simply, he's writing to an exclusively Christian audience who are mostly Jewish. And these people, by the way, were probably under his care when they were back in Jerusalem before they scattered or before the dispersion. James might have a secondary meeting when he talks about to those who are in the dispersion, the 12 tribes of the, in the dispersion. And that is, it refers to all believers who are living in exile. In a sense that we have been scattered from our real homeland. A renewed heaven and earth. And we long for and await the Lord's return. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Greetings. The word greetings is Cairo, which means be glad, rejoice, be well, thrive. That's James' heart for the church for Christians, for you and I, that no matter what it is that we're in, enduring right now, whether it be great or not so great, is that he wants us to thrive in Christ Jesus, to be glad and to rejoice. The heart of James is to encourage believers to live that way and to have a working faith, not an idle faith, not a dead faith, but a working faith, one that joyfully lives in submission to our good and loving slave owner, if I might. So now that you know the author, you know the audience, you know the greeting, what are some of the key themes in this book of James that we're going to be unpacking over the next 10 to 12 weeks? James is not writing to a particular church, like Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus or Galatia or the church in Rome. He's writing to, uh, and he's not writing to correct any doctrine, He's not writing to give any kind of a warning. Um, he writes generally to Christians who are experiencing, get this, isolation and separation at some level. Remember, they scattered. And the Jewish leaders are not leaving them alone. So these are probably house churches where these Christians are gathering. He's writing to those who have little in this life, and he's writing to those who have much. He writes to Christians in general, knowing what we are going through, Christians throughout all time, as a simple nature of the human flesh that we live in. James writes with a very direct style, and he tends not to get bogged down in lengthy technical theological exposition. One of the, um, as I asked the pastors if we could preach this book, actually, it's one of the things that appealed to me. I personally, I just need a, like, straightforward, remind me of God's goodness and kindness and love, and how do I respond to that? How do I have a faith that works? 
and uh, you know we, we we go into deep theological books and we'll do that again uh, but I actually just need a um, a uh, a softball and a softball that will actually pack a big punch he he will instruct Christians you and I who are already born as slaves to God how to live in this already but not yet kingdom he writes in a very direct style, and he tends to not get bogged down. I already said that, um, so I won't say it again. Um, James addresses everyday issues of living, how to speak, how we should think about wealth or lack of wealth, how to approach conflict. Anybody leave that out there? Sickness, suffering. It's super practical and down to earth. His writing is fun. It's full of pictures and illustrations. And it's not hard to get swept along in this book as James describes blazing forests and mighty ships and resilient farmers and wild flowers. These all add to the immediacy of what James wants us to know. He has an immediacy of wanting us to have active, living, working faith. This letter demands our attention for one monumental reason. And he says it in James 2, verse 1. It's all about what it truly means to follow the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It will show us what genuine faith looks like in this already but not yet kingdom. Life that is awesome and life that is hard. It will challenge us about how real faith works hard and lives distinctively. James will encourage and exhort you in a tone that is of a tender pastor. He will address us 14 times in this, in this book as brothers and sisters or my dear brothers and sisters. In this short book, five chapters, there's over 40 Old Testament references. Interesting, Jesus is only mentioned twice in the entire book. But God, Father, or Lord is mentioned 37 times. And some of those actually refers to Jesus. So we'll have some fun actually identifying that. There are 20 references in the book of James to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There are more verbal reminders of Jesus' teaching than all the other New Testament writings combined. There are 54 imperatives, commands, if you will. Do this, don't do that. It can be a very dangerous book, actually, for those who have not been born again. Because this book can be used to bring about nothing but moralism. This is a book for those who have been born into God's kingdom, who have been born again, and it instructs us how to live. If there were a key theme in James, it would come from the use of the word perfect. It's mentioned seven times and is a constant theme throughout the book. Perfect means wholeness or one-minded versus double-minded. He addresses this double-minded problem that all humans have, whether we're born again or not. He addresses this problem that we have at some level that we are all pulled in two directions. 
we all experience the human condition of being divided between loyalty to God and the attractive lure of the world that, brother, that bothers James more than anything. His earnest desire for you and I is that Christians leave behind this stable and inconsistent halfway faith and progress towards a wholehearted, unvarying commitment to God in thought, word, and deed. This is a super practical book, brothers and sisters. I hope you enjoy it as much as I've been enjoying it here the last week as I've been bathing in it. A couple of key passages as we close off. James chapter chapter 2, verse 17. So also by faith itself, if it does not have work, it's works is dead. Now for James, that a true and lively faith is a faith that works. Not earned, but works. And in James 1.22, the key verse is be doers of the word. Not only hearers who deceive themselves. James encourages the church to be the church. He wants to encourage believers throughout all time to fulfill what he calls the royal law of God. It's to love our neighbor as ourselves. I can't think of a better time to engage in the book of James than in a time where we need to examine what does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves, our closest neighbor in our house our next-door neighbors, our neighbors at the gym, our neighbors in the workplace, our neighbors in the church. James will encourage us to a working faith that moves, that will move us to lead Bible studies in our workplace, to lead Bible studies in our neighborhoods and gyms, to help addict and rehabilitation centers, to serve food in homeless shelters, to care for the fatherless, to care for widows in retirement homes, to, to provide hospice for the elderly, to train men and women in their job skills, to tutor men and women in reading, to rock sick babies in hospitals, to help patients in AIDS clinics, to serve at pregnancy resource centers, to teach English to internationals. The list goes on and on and on. Faith works. Moving Christians to take steps of joyful obedience to make the gospel known all around the world. And here's my prayer in closing. My prayer is, is that as we teach through this book, you'll be reminded of your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and you'll be spurred on to ask this question in this time, God, what are you doing? And how do you want me to respond? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, giving us uh, 56 glorious books in the canon of your word. And we thank you, God, that every page points to you and remind us, uh, reminds us of your character and your promises and your plan to bring into your kingdom those who you've known from eternity past so that we can experience the love and the kindness of a slave owner. And God, we don't normally think of you in those terms, but it's what James uses. And God, I thank you that we've been purchased and our life is not our own. And God, I do want to ask the question, 
And I want to ask daily, God, and I pray that you would um, lead us by your spirit, standing firm on your word. God, what are you up to in these days? What are you up to? And how do you want us to respond? God, we pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done. And would you revive our hearts? Would you revive the hearts of the church? And would you bring many into your kingdom for your glory and your glory alone? We love you. We thank you that you loved us more and love us today more. We pray all of this in the matchless name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Have a great week.